Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reesmandel, and joining me from San Francisco is... Jennifer Waits. And also joining us from Madison, Wisconsin, is friend of the show, author, and pirate radio scholar, John Anderson. Welcome back, John. John Anderson. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Glad you could join us. We're here because... Oh, well, we're here because we do the show every week, but we're here talking with you, John, because uh, the Senate recently, on January 8th, passed a bill called the Pirate Act. And it's been passed by the House, and it's been presented to the president for signing. And this is the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act. And John, you know, you're our go-to person for talking about unlicensed radio. I think you've done deeper research on it than than just about anybody else, especially with regard to to the United States. You know, I'm sure you've kept track of it. Can you tell us, like, what what does this Pirate Act do? What what is it supposed to do right now? Well, there's you know the the political implications and the practical implications. And I guess we can start with the political implications first. The Pirate Act is essentially an attempt to streamline the FCC's enforcement process against unlicensed broadcasting and also uh, try to create more additional deterrence incentives to this thing. And there's basically seven things that the Pirate Act does. Uh, the first one is it increases the maximum amount of fines you can get for unlicensed broadcasting up to $100,000 a day. Uh, with a maximum amount of $2 million. Just for context, that's $1 million less than I think it was the Bush-era legislation approved that uh, created the $3 million maximum uh, penalty for indecency. So politically, it's up there. Uh, it also contains language that allows the FCC to skip a step in the enforcement process. The way it currently works is uh, people come out and inspect your they hear your signal, they check to see if it's a licensed signal. If it's not, they try to figure out where it is and how strong it is. Um, and then after they do that, they issue you a warning letter. And depending on how you handle the warning letter, they escalate the process. This allows the FCC to skip that warning letter step and go straight to the threat of fining you large amounts of dollars. Um, the fourth thing that it does is it requires a yearly report back to the House and Senate committees that oversee communications regulation and asks uh, the FCC to answer the questions of like how they've implemented the act and how other agencies have assisted with their enforcement activities. And they're specifically pointing to U.S. attorneys' offices and federal marshals in that regard. Um, it also requires the FCC to conduct, and this is the big one that's gotten a lot of the press, uh, requires the FCC to conduct annual enforcement sweeps in the top five markets of the country where pirate broadcasting is most prevalent. And in addition to doing these enforcement sweeps, it also requires the FCC to do a follow-up, quote-unquote, monitoring sweep six months after they do the enforcement sweeps. Hmm. Um, it also prohibits the FCC from preempting local and state regulations uh, that try to combat pirate broadcasting. So, for example, um, in New York... New Jersey and Florida, there are state laws that criminalize unlicensed broadcasting. And the Pirate Act basically says the FCC has to work with those states, um, not preempt their own enforcement activities. And then finally, um, it requires this cockamamie database to be put <laughs> together 
um, which would include a listing of all licensed radio stations in the country, as well as any entity that has been charged with unlicensed broadcasting. And the FCC is required to update this database like every six months. So those are kind of the political implications mm-hmm. of the Pirate Act. The practical implications are very uh, slim to none um, because there's a lot of things that are basically unfunded mandates onto an agency that can't enforce the law as it's currently written. Mm. So you're saying the FCC, their problem isn't their, isn't their mandate to deal with unlicensed radio. It's more of a capacity question. And so giving them more mandates doesn't necessarily improve the circumstance. Right. So uh, in preparation for talking with, with you all uh, today, I actually went back and looked at some of the budget requests that the FCC has put together. And I was focusing on fiscal year 2020 because they knew the Pirate Act was probably going to come to pass. And it had been pending for the last two congressional sessions. Um, and there's nothing in the FCC's fiscal year 2020 budget request about doing anything to increase the amount of funding to the Enforcement Bureau. <laughs> There's nothing in there to like increase the travel budget for field agents to go around and actually hunt pirates. There's nothing in there uh, asking for appropriations to get new equipment in pirate hunting efforts. Um, in fact, uh, the FCC's Enforcement Bureau has gained, I think, a net total of three uh, positions in the last couple of years. Um but if you look at that in the context of the entire agency, which has lost 300 positions in the last 10 years, yeah, uh, the I kind of rem- austerity within you know the FCC is still in effect. So Congress has told them to do all this stuff, but the FCC, nor has Congress actually given the FCC the resources to do all this stuff. Well, so hmm. why why is Congress asking this? What what prompted this legislation? Because I mean, it it had overwhelming support in Congress, both sides of the aisle. They were well, they're all for this know, act. Not really. Uh, I mean, if you look at um, like on the House side of the Pirate Act, that was where it was initially introduced. The guy who introduced the bill is no longer in Congress because he's been charged with felonious insider training and resigned his seat. Um, his name was Chris Collins from upstate New York. Uh, he resigned. Um, and there he had, I think like two or three spons- co-sponsors on there. Uh, and then on the Senate side, uh, some guy from Montana, uh, <laughs> issued the, the companion legislation Wait, and another radio senator, a problem in, in, in Montana, <laughs> apparently from the Senator statement, you know, this is a great blow for Montana broadcasters. And I'm sitting there going like, okay, yeah, right. Because pirate radio is such a huge problem in Montana. Anyway, uh, to, to your question or to your, your point, no, there wasn't widespread support for this. In fact, the votes that were taken were not roll call votes. Oh. Uh, in the house, it was a, it was a voice vote. Um, so there wasn't even really debate and in the Senate. It was unanimous consent. So like, no, there wasn't a lot of support for this. There's been well, uh, targeted industry lobbyist donations to members that sit on the committees that advance legislation. Um, and a you know whole set of talking points was developed about the existential threat uh, that unlicensed broadcasting you know it, uh, provides. and it just kind of made its way through the system. So no, is this is not how- some sort of you know upswell of craziness that and is that how it originally came about? Was it lobbyist efforts? Well, yes. Um, f- 
for a little bit of historical context, back during the Obama years, uh, when Tom Wheeler was chair of the Federal Communications Commission, uh, the Enforcement Bureau actually went through a reorganization process where the number of field offices was significantly reduced and so was the amount of staff um, devoted to those offices. And one of the things that the Wheeler administration uh, did was they kind of deprioritized enforcement of unlicensed broadcasting. In fact, there was a whistleblower complaint allegedly that Chairman Ajit Pai referred to once saying that in like the Northeast United States, uh, they got an email from a field agent who was passing along an email from the, re the regional director saying, we're not going to go after pirates unless they interfere you know, with another station. And apparently, since the change of the administration, uh, there's been a lot of pushback on that. And so under a Republican administration that likes law and order and does not like black and brown people, um, so the Trump administration is all about kind of law and order. And, and a lot of their law and order initiatives have been kind of directed towards uh, the criminalization, penalization of being black and brown, and the FCC's initiatives with the Pirate Act kind of fits into that. Um, the reason being is because if you look at the hotspots for pirate radio, they typically are in heavily populated urban areas with large immigrant populations. And if you look within pirate radio itself, um, probably like ethnographically and demographically, uh, the largest contingent of pirates who are getting kind of busted by the FCC right now come from uh, Caribbean island nations like Haiti. Um, there was just two cases in Boston over the last couple of weeks where the FCC put out these ginormous, you know, $150,000 to $450,000 fines uh, against two pirate broadcasters in Boston. Both of them were actually programming Haitian stations to the Haitians community there. So, um, that's where these penalties are going to disproportionately fall. Hey, John, uh, but, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, something that you, you've talked with us many times on Radio Survivor here is about how unlicensed stations, especially in cities like Boston, New York, northern New Jersey, Florida, serve uh, these immigrant populations that aren't well served by, uh, you know, commercial or even non-commercial broadcasting by licensed broadcasters. And, you know, the Boston Globe of all publications yeah, publish an editorial at the beginning of the year, uh, really in defense of these broadcasters of, the, of these particular two, uh, Haitian, uh, unlicensed broadcasters that receive these, these big fines saying that the FCC ought to provide some sort of path to legitimacy. Right. You know, uh, that's impossible though. <laughs> um, because, <laughs> because the one attempt, uh, that the FCC has made within the last, you know, 20 years to provide a pathway uh, for legitimacy for unlicensed broadcasters. And I'm speaking about, you know, low power FM radio station service. Uh, there was legislation passed by Congress there as well that explicitly banned anyone who had been involved in unlicensed broadcasting from applying for and receiving a license. The FCC itself was willing to offer amnesty in their initial iteration of LPFM, but Congress at the behest of industry lobbyists stepped in and basically precluded those people from ever becoming hmm. legitimate. So, so there is even if the FCC wanted to, uh, they are you know bound by the legislation that directs their activities to to not consider unlicensed broadcasters as legitimate licensed broadcasting fodder. Hmm. And that's interesting because I know, uh, say in UK, where uh, community radio is is relatively new, um, in particular 
the uh, the authorities there have tried to use community radio as a path to legitimacy for 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 unlicensed and pirate broadcasters, simply right as a way to to turn them from being a problem into being something they can regulate and control. Oh, geez, you know uh, there wouldn't be a BBC Radio One right. were it not for unlicensed uh, pirate radio DJs of the 1950s and 60s. You know, they they harvested all of their talent to set up their nationwide pop music channel from unlicensed broadcasters. Yeah, a lot of, you know, civilized countries uh, have a much more civilized perspective on what it means to be a legitimate broadcaster than the United States does, and we're going in a draconian kind of paper shuffling direction so, as opposed to an inclusion direction. So the pirate broadcasters of today in the United States how much are they interfering with radio stations that do have licenses? How much of a problem is it on the dial? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, and I actually asked the uh, FCC a couple of years ago uh, for information as to whether or not, um, you know, pirate broadcasters were actually causing massive amounts of interference to licensed broadcasters or even to, you know, uh, as the big talking point has been uh, to, you know, air traffic control and public safety frequencies. And what I actually found out is that uh, it's a fairly infinitesimal problem, you know, like of all the sources of potential interference to say aircraft communication, navigation, pirates rank you know, below the top 10. I think number two on the list was other federal government run radio communication systems interfere with interesting, <laughs> you know, interfere with aircraft navigation and communication more than pirates do. Um, but there's been this, you know, in conjunction with the passage, the run up to the passage of the pirate act, there's been this massive kind of public misinformation campaign alleging you know, that pirates uh, are threats to public safety because they interfere with uh, stations and that presents prevents the uh, dissemination of, say, emergency alert system messages and things like that. There's even been some cases like in New York and New Jersey where licensed broadcasters have said uh, pirates cause harm because they mislead consumers. They don't follow advertising regulation and things like that. And, and Michael Riley, the commissioner who's been most interested in kind of beefing up the draconian sanctions against unlicensed broadcasting has advanced the argument that it's actually causing the industry to lose money. And the industry itself, if you look at their own documents, it doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. uh, radio revenue is still increasing, you know, fractionally year over year, but it's still increasing. Oh, so, so he's arguing no that they're taking away ad dollars, that they're attracting yeah. away ad dollars. Got it. Yeah. And is that the fear that, you know, when when you have people, when you have lobbyists and people from the industry who are, who are trying to get a bill like this um, introduced, is that part of their argument and part of their fear is that they're afraid of losing money from pirate stations that are taking ads? Uh, it's not a legitimate fear, you know. Um, so the fact that they're raising it is a scare tactic. It's an uh, it's an insubstantial uh, scare tactic that. Our lawmakers who are not well versed on communications policy don't know and can't can't actually you know assess the validity of so they take it as as writ and of course if you think about it you know at congressional hearings where this has been discussed there was never any like you know pirate radio defenders or advocates allowed to come testify <laughs> so the record that the entire evidentiary record on which this act is built um, is functionally illegitimate. 
And that's just kind of the, how policy is made and has been for the last 30 plus years. So if they're not actually interfering with that many stations and they're not taking money away from stations, what is it that is motivating uh, people to promote this kind of legislation? <sighs> that's a great question, Jennifer. And it's also kind of complicated. Um I don't have a good answer. To, I have I have my own perspective as to why I think they're doing this, and I think that it's one of these, um, you know, as uh, what's his face, Noam Chomsky and Ben Bagdikian once said, it's the it's the dig there, not here phenomenon, you know, right? So instead of actually looking at the state of our media policy and how it promotes access and inclusion to the airwaves, um, and instead of looking at how, you know. The radio, the commercial radio industry specifically in the last 25 years has been decimated by consolidation, automation, and syndication. Instead of looking at those substantive structural problems, we can point to a manufactured crisis and direct legislative and regulatory efforts towards that. I think this is really what it's all about. And, and again, I think it's because the Trump administration has kind of brought out the more punitive uh, streak in a lot of people. And as we're seeing in other areas of law enforcement in the Trump administration, primarily in you know immigration and customs enforcement, um, this is just a, a great time for bad actors to be cruel. And that's kind of what the Pirate Act is all about. And it gives the industry uh, you know, a paper win they can point to and say, see, look, we're upholding the public interest because we're keeping these ne'er-do-wells, these scoff laws off the air. Well, yeah, and certainly a lot of people do not like scoff laws, and and I'm sure there is some interference. So, yeah, if I your radio station experiencing interference, you're probably going to be in favor of this. Yeah, I, I did want to follow up on the interference thing because I I know that it's it's a particular sore point to some uh, public and and community broadcasters, particularly in these hot zones. For instance, mm -hmm. you know I I know that uh, community radio station WFMU, based out of Jersey City. Um, experiences right. the problem probably more so than any other station, as far as I understand. You know, I wonder. I mean, you know, and and I'm not. I don't. I don't know that that they've gone on record in support of the Pirate Act. I don't want to put that on them. But I, I wonder. You know, what is? Oh how do yeah. we square that circle, right? And in, in, in that we do have some some community broadcasters, ones who are trying to do good community work, uh, who are suffering a bit uh, from unlicensed broadcasters who are either using their frequency or using a close enough frequency to cause uh, people in, say, Brooklyn or parts of northern New Jersey not to be able to get their signal. How do, how do we deal with that, if, even if maybe uh, something like the Pirate Act isn't, th isn't the best way to go about it? Uh, you know, that that involves a lot deeper research into, you know, kind of the dynamic of radio listenership in large markets and how radio signals interact with other signals in large markets. You know, I've heard people from like WFMU and, and New York Public Radio um, talk about how they've tried to expand their own coverage footprints and they're getting decimated by these pirates. And, you know, I kind of think about that and, and two things come to mind. Number one uh, how pervasive is the interference problem, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, one person's interference in one area of the five boroughs will be dramatically different than someone even a dozen blocks away. 
right? So we need better data <laughs> on how pervasive interference problems between unlicensed and licensed broadcasters are. And the other thing that I point to, especially when like public broadcasters make these arguments, is is the loss of your signal in these communities where pirates are operating actually something that causes a loss to you as a radio institution? What I mean by that is how many people in Flatbush, Brooklyn, where Haitian pirate radio is extremely prevalent, were listening to WNYC, you know, before the pirates came in. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, we don't have the data to say. So it's very hard for me to say uh, those complaints are wholly legitimate. I'm not saying they're illegitimate. I'm just saying they're not completely justified to a point where I can feel sorry for WFMU because they're, you know, pipsqueak translator in lower Manhattan's getting chowdered on. Right. Um, so there's, we need more information before we can kind of square that circle. And I think the other thing that we need to uh, consider is, um, the notion of harm reduction. And this is something that we've discussed in previous Radio Survivor podcasts. And that's, we're never going to kind of get rid of the natural human, human inclination to communicate. And depending on cultural context, radio is a part of that. And that involves unlicensed broadcasting. So instead of trying to criminalize and, and you know, enact prohibition <laughs> on this phenomenon, what are way, what are the ways by which we can minimize the amount of interference that may be potentially generated by unlicensed stations? Mm -hmm. But that's, again, something that the FCC is not even willing to entertain as a concept. And that voice you just heard is John Anderson. He is a friend of Radio Survivor. He's an author and uh, one of the most foremost leading researchers on pirate radio. You're listening to Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismanel, and joining me is Jennifer Waits, and we're talking about the Pirate Act, which is a law just passed by Congress, which would arm the FCC with additional mandates and the ability to level greater fines to combat the problem that's perceived around unlicensed and and pirate radio. And, and John, I, I wanted to follow up on you know the harm reduction idea that you just put out there. An analog is often to working with people who are addicted to intravenous drugs is being able to provide clean needles. Yeah, or or um, a birth control. Addiction is part of the human condition. There will always be people that suffer from that sort of illness. Uh, we can't ban addiction, so let's treat it in a more humane and civilized way. Teenagers will have sex. <laughs> and we would like to you know, ban teenage pregnancy if we could, but that's just not possible. So let's try to figure out safe and humane ways for teenagers to reduce the risk of pregnancy if they're going to have sex. And both of those initiatives were initially considered part of the criminal enterprise they were trying to you know, go uh, and, and help. To a certain degree, you know, needle exchange programs were, were criminalized. Birth control programs were initially criminalized. But again, like if you don't have a regulatory agency who's even willing to consider that paradigm, then there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah. An interesting case is New Zealand, where they've actually reserved a couple of frequencies specifically for unlicensed use. Here in the United States, we have an unlicensed broadcast regime of sorts that we commonly refer to as Part 15 because that's like the part of the Communications Act that applies to it where you can use little tiny bits of power 
to broadcast, but really aren't for broadcasting. It's really more, it's sort of a rule that allows a, a unintentional radiator, so to speak, to be on the broadcast band. And it just so happens you could broadcast that way using like one of the transmitters you might use in your car to get to your car stereo. Whereas in New Zealand, it's specifically for unlicensed broadcasting. It's not for very much power. Um, it's, I think, for like a watt or so. But there's there's no regulatory requirements around it. Anyone can go on the air on these frequencies and they leave it more or less up to the broadcasters to kind of work out between themselves, you know, who will use what frequency at, at what time, which is effectively what in some ways pirate broadcasters have to do now, whether it's de facto or, 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 or by uh, playing uh, an ele ever elevating arms race. But, you know, there's at least one, I don't know of many other sorts of, regimes like that in the world. Um, and, and, you know, New Zealand, by comparison, is not a very urbanized country compared to the United States. But but there are ideas out there where you might be able to provide even, you know, some space for unlicensed broadcasting. Although, again, I understand it within the history of U.S. broadcasting, that's viewed as a threat by the incumbent broadcast industry in the same way that even low-power FM was viewed as a threat by the incumbent broadcast industry when it was first proposed uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I think is important to kind of talk about when we talk about the political versus the practical effects of the Pirate Act is that one of the talking points about this has been it gives increased amounts of tools to the FCC to do their job. And that's not true. There's no additional enforcement tools really, you know, brought here. And when it comes to actually, you know, going following through on the deterrence effect of increasing the fines, those are things that the FCC has no control over. So, for example, um, if you are fined by the Federal Communications Commission for anything, just not just unlicensed broadcasting, and say you just re ignore it, you just refuse to pay, uh, the FCC cannot come after you itself. It has to hand off your case to the Department of Justice, to a U.S. Attorney's office, and that. U.S. Attorney's Office has to sue you in hmm. civil court, and then they have to get a judgment from a civil court to collect the money on you. So I think part of the deal of raising the maximum fine for pirate broadcasting to $2 million is it might entice U.S. Attorney's Offices to take on cases like that because there's the chance of collection. Now, that being said, there's actually federal statutes that mid against giving out these big fines. Um, so, for example, both in the U.S. Code and the Code of Federal Regulations, statutes say the FCC must consider uh, a violator's ability to pay. And the way the FCC has interpreted that is, show me three years of tax returns that demonstrate you're poor, and if that's the case, we'll knock the fine down. So there have been lots of cases in the past where an unlicensed broadcaster has been fined $25,000 or $10,000 or whatever, and it gets knocked down to 500 bucks or 1000 bucks. So who's to say <laughs> that you know giving uh, a Haitian broadcaster in Boston a $450,000 fine is really going to result in a collection of $450,000? The, the history is not there for that. And if the FCC wanted to get even more hardcore and say you didn't pay the fine and they wanted to come and raid your house or your office space and take your equipment, they can't do that either. They actually need the help of the U.S. Federal Marshal Service. 
So in order, after exhausting all of this administrative hullabaloo and threats of fining you, if they want to take you off the air, the power, the ultimate power to do that lays outside of the FCC itself. So, you know, there's a lot of law going on here that actually kind of mitigates against what the Pirate Act is supposedly going to do to tamp down on the amount of unlicensed broadcasting in the United States. Another, another, yeah, another part of it that you mentioned was this database that they want to construct, which I was also sort of fascinated by that. And, and pragmatically, how are they going to create a database of pirates? Well, Jesus H, I've been, I was doing that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I, on my, on my old website, DIYmedia.net, I had something called the enforcement action database. And basically what I did is I went through all of the publicly available enforcement documents and just listed it in chronological order. You know, here's the name of the station, the name of the person here's where they're from, the frequency, if I could get like, you know, power, uh, information oh, so and things simply- like that, how long they were on the air. So yeah. it's simply so a like list the, of enforcement actions. Well, that was what I was doing, but it essentially was a list of pirates, right? Yeah. Uh, what the FCC, what the Pirate Act is telling the FCC to do is make an easily accessible database of not only all licensed stations, but all people who've been accused of or convicted of unlicensed broadcasting. So I'm presuming like, you know, they're supposed to have it up, I think, in like 90 days after the bill is signed into law. Um, I, I presume I could like type in Madison, Wisconsin, and I would get a list of here's all the licensed stations that serve Madison, Wisconsin. And then I get a list of here's all the people that have been accused of running pirate stations in mm, Madison. But I don't know. Like we, we have no idea. It's, it's sort of funny because it seems to me that if the FCC is aware of an unlicensed operator, uh, and if, that's usually because they've already gone out and attempted to flag them and attempted to file a notice of violation. It seems like the enforcement database that they currently have that you can look at at their website already is kind of de facto that database. And they already, of course, have a database of licensed stations because that's what the FCC does. So it it seems sort of a little superfluous to me, I guess, uh, overall. They yeah, gotta who create, would, they got to create a new a new database with existing information for a different subject and put it up somewhere. That said, I did notice in uh, the FCC's 2020 fiscal year budget request that they have asked for an increase of ten thousand dollars in enforcement bureau co- contractual services. So maybe they're going to hire, <laughs> you know, somebody. They should hire me. I've been doing it for free for twenty That's years. Right. Put it in a Google uh, Doc. <laughs> right, well, and, exactly. and pragmatically, how is that going to be more helpful to have a different interface for the same information? I think it's, you know, it's kind of like along the lines of supposedly publicly shaming people. Got you it. Know? Like, oh, it's, ooh, like, it's I, like when I, uh, I can find on Google and it shows that you're in the FCC's bad guy database for pirates, you know, like I when police departments uh, publish the names of uh, men arrested for soliciting prostitution. Something yeah, like that. I think I think that that may be the reason uh, why they. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in in the bill that talks about data collection, like you know, uh, they have to do these sweeps, enforcement sweeps, you know, once a year, and then six months later they have to go back to those places and collect information on where the sweeps effective. You know, the FCC kind of this is tangential, but I think slightly related is uh, the FCC back in 2018, 2019 created an office of economics and analytics. 
and it was basically a way by which the agency consolidated all the people working on economics and analytics issues into its own little office. And I think that maybe part of the Pirate Act is paying homage to this new uh, quote unquote data driven paradigm that the FCC is trying to embrace. But yeah, it's, it's, it's hackneyed, you know, and I don't know what it's going to look like, but uh, I guess we'll find out. So that also has me thinking about this class of folks or this group of folks who are doing unlicensed broadcasting that's legal. And we've been talking, we've mentioned part 15 a few times where you can have stations like there are college radio stations. In fact, it's a huge part of college radio history that campus only stations that broadcast via carrier current over AM carrier current those started in the 1930s and that was a type of broadcasting that the FCC said was okay because those stations were limited to the college campus. They weren't interfering with other licensed broadcasters. And so I'm wondering um, with stations like this that are operating, you know, under the auspices of part 15 rules, they're operating legally, although they don't have a license. Are they in danger are they in any more danger with the Pirate Act? Uh, no. Um, partially because uh, the, the, the fact that Part 15 power levels are so low um, kind of means that that level of technology is not being used by pirates that want to reach an audience measured in the size of a neighborhood. You know, And actually because of the efforts of lobbying by uh, part 15 hobby broadcasting enthusiasts, there is a little addendum that's been added to the text of the Pirate Act that says these penalties do not apply to stations that are broadcasting under Part 15. So provided that, you know, those who are using that technology, and this includes, you know, carrier current stations on college campuses, can show the FCC that they're broadcasting within the Part 15 constraints, then there's no harm, no foul. And are there people who are confused by that, um, because I was just actually reading through the entire part 15, which is quite yeah, lengthy. Right. Yeah. Um, so how does the station know that it's operating, you know, the way it should be? Uh, so for there's, there's part 15 has got two different uh, types of regulation, depending on whether if it's AM or FM uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jennifer or Paul, but on the AM side, I think it's like a uh, hundred milliwatts of transmitter output power. That's pretty much the rule. It's a uh, hundred milliwatts transmitter output power, and then there's also restrictions on your antenna, right? Because uh, you can't like beef it up to make it a hugely powerful yeah, I signal think it's through the three meters, inclusive of the antenna and ground. And if and for listeners who are not technical, and that doesn't make sense to you, just you know, basically your antenna can be three meters long. And folks who are into Part 15 will understand the rest. But yeah, so because a longer antenna ostensibly would be more efficient and allow that hundred milliwatts to go further. So there's very strict. Uh, restrictions on both the power output and also the antenna length on the AM dial. Right. And on the FM side, it's not a, it's not a transmitter output restriction. It's a field strength restriction measured from the antenna. So uh, part 15 broadcasting allows an FM station to put out a signal equivalent to 250 volts, 250 microvolts per meter measured three meters from the antenna. How does one measure that? 
<laughs> well, you need a field strength meter yeah. in order to do that, right? And and a little mathematical formula. Um, but there's no easily, you know, you can't just say, oh, it's a hundred, you know, milliwatts out of an FM transmitter or a watt, right? Right. Um, and be- well, and because I follow this, I mean, there are a couple of shorthands, Jennifer, that you can use. Um, there are transmitter manufacturers that actually submit their transmitters to the FCC yep. for certification for both the AM and the FM dial. And so uh, presumably uh, someone who is using one of these transmitters that is certified and they do not modify it, meaning they don't open it up and play with the innards. They don't change the in- built-in antenna. They do no additions to it at all. Um ostensibly we should believe that if they're using an unmodified certified transmitter they are adhering to the law the thing is in many cases they'll be very uh disappointed with the range that they get (laughs) exactly i mean basically uh and this is a totally non-scientific way of thinking about it effectively like on the fm side if your signal goes out further than a couple hundred feet you may be in violation of part 15 that's kind of the way it's kind of the way to look at it right if you could be heard by more than like a city block, chances are you're probably running more power than, you know, that would violate that field strength thing. Um, But the whole process of pirate radio enforcement by the FCC is primarily a reactive process, which means it's complaint generated. So lots of part 15, I I think that, you know, kind of like unlicensed broadcasting more generally, part 15 operation in the United States is probably undercounted because so few people can actually hear the stations you know what i mean so that so they don't even know they're there and one of the things that brings a pirate to the attention of the fcc is someone noticing that they're there and that typically involves power above the part 15 level so there's another um i know that there there are part 15 stations that might operate using different transmitters so you might be able to hear that station in various parts of town, mm-hmm. even though it's not operating at, you know, this uh, larger power output. It has, you know, like these little transmitters in different places. Um, does that put them at risk if they're doing that type of thing? No. Uh, the wonderful thing about Part 15 is that you could theoretically employ an infinite number of those transmitters, provided every transmitter stays within the the restraints, you know, uh, articulated by law and there have been people who have you know at least kind of thought experimented that out like how many part 15 transmitters would it take to cover you know a block in manhattan right and and could we figure out a way to replicate that en masse to create you know a neighborhood level transmission coverage area using little extremely micropowered part 15 transmitters but uh infrastructurally it's gets complicated and the, yeah. the return on investment, you know, kind of diminishes the more complicated it gets. I know right, three, there's like three prominent experiments that I know of. And going back to the 90s, I think there was Free Radio Alston in Alston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which attempted yep. to build sort of a Part 15 network. And I and again, I don't think they ran into any sort of, you know, legal hassles. It was just a difficult model to be sustainable. More recently, about 10 years ago, uh, in the city of Staten, Oregon, which is a uh, kind of a suburb of, of Salem, the state capital, so about an hour or so south of Portland, there was someone who, who attempted to put together a Part 15 
network of sorts with and, and got the cooperation of of the local authority, the local city, to, you know, because he essentially wanted to put on a community radio station. And he ran into some issues essentially because he, he put up a transmitter on a water tower and got into a conflict with an FCC field agent over whether or not basically the water tower constituted an antenna (laughs) you know and there was a lot of back (laughs) and forth there and i think ultimately it it was unresolved but only now um he operates a low power fm he now is part of a uh, of a low power fm community station there in state and so because that was about a few years before that the next window opened up in 2013 and i know also it was maybe about 10 years ago maybe a little longer um that the pacifica network actually proposed a a network of part 15 uh, low power, you know, legal low power transmitters in, in Los Angeles to be able to serve out Spanish language programming, in particular to serve uh, the Latino population there. I don't think that ever got beyond the idea stage. Well, and even yeah. even back in 1970, um, WBCR at Brooklyn College was exploring putting transmitters off campus in, at the time they said, every conceivable area in New York in order to have their carrier current station heard off campus. So, uh, yeah, people have been playing around with that idea for a long time. Yeah, one of the, one of the biggest problems with Part 15 uh, and the, the weakness of the signal strength is its ability to penetrate buildings. You know, so if you can put a Part 15 transmitter up somewhere, that's great if you're outside <laughs> listening to radio on your bike or in your car or something like that. But then you go into your house or your apartment and suddenly the signal cannot penetrate the walls, which means that even if you put up a Part 15 transmitter somewhere and say, I provide coverage to this area, the reality is going to be less depending on like, you know, what construction materials the dwellings are made of and things like that. So, um, and that's, it's, I really admire the folks who do part 15 broadcasting because they're trying to basically squeeze blood from a stone, you know, and they're trying to figure out different ways of doing that. And I, I really kind of groove on that, but as a practical, you know, alternative to broadcasting without some sort of FCC sanction, then uh, no, it doesn't. It kind of falls short in that regard. Well, you know, you know, the, jo- I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jennifer. Then I, I'd like oh, to take and, us down another uh, avenue. Um, and the pirate. So the pirates that are that are operating and that are being noticed and getting fines are they mostly FM stations? Oh yes. Um, if you look back like over the last 20 years of enforcement history, well over 90 to 95% of the FCC's enforcement activity has been against FM broadcasters. Uh, the next group would be AM, um, which is still fairly, you know, rare. And then the the last group would be shortwave. And are they, and are they operating at really high power? Uh, again, that's kind of hard to tell because we don't have access to data. Um, you know, when the FCC uh, puts out, for example, a notice of unlicensed operation or a notice of apparent liability, they include some scientific language in there. Like, for example, uh, the field agent measured the strength at X number of microvolts per meter at 50 meters from where the antenna was located, right? But there's no mathematical formula to translate that into like wattage, how much transmitter output power uh, are these stations running, nor does the FCC care what the specific power is. They just care it's over part 15. Now, there was a study done in the New York metropolitan area by uh, a consulting engineer um, who actually went around and measured 
the field strength of pirate stations in New York and New Jersey. Um, and that consulting engineer guesstimated uh, that most stations are probably running above 50 watts of power, probably uh, a significant number are running in the hundreds of watts. And the consulting engineer even insinuated that a couple of them could be running with a few thousand watts mm -hmm. uh, from certain locations like the tops of apartment buildings or something like that. But there's no way to definitively prove that because we don't have access to the equipment and there's no easy mathematical formula for translating signal strength into transmitter output power. I've been wanting to do that forever uh, to help me understand a little bit more about the dynamics of how pirate radio stations operate, but it has eluded me for now. Yeah, yeah, because I'm curious, you know, is are they operating sort of in the same league as low power FM or, or are they operating, you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, that's, like, that's one of the things that the industry lobbyists have been harping on is one of the reasons to pass the Pirate Act is, you know, there's this guy sitting on top of your apartment building who's putting out 5,000 watts of power into your child's head uh, in the bedroom right below you. And again, without actual data to make that claim, the claim is kind of specious. So, yeah, it's a mess. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. You just heard from John Anderson, friend of the show, author, and one of the foremost researchers in pirate radio. I'm Paul Reismandel. Joining me as well is Jennifer Waits. And we've been talking about the Pirate Act, which is a law recently passed through Congress, which is intended to help the FCC fight unlicensed pirate radio in the United States. You can find Radio Survivor online at radiosurvivor.com. And we'll have show notes uh, to help you dig even deeper into everything we've talked about today. That's at radiosurvivor.com. As well, in most podcast listening apps, you can usually swipe left or right on your phone and see our show notes right then and there. We want to help you get down and uh, as nerdy as we get here on the show. If you have any comments about the program, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at uh, radiosurvivor.com. So, so, John, if we're going to kind of uh, sum up a little bit our discussion here about the Pirate Act, it sounds to me as if uh, it doesn't show a lot of promise for actually getting at the problem as articulated with unlicensed broadcasters, that there's a number of failure points and it seems to be uh, somewhat more smoke than fire. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um in one of the recent, you know, mega fines that was issued to uh, some Haitian pirates in Boston, one of the Democratic commissioners, Jeffrey Starks, who actually used to work in the Enforcement Bureau, uh, put out a statement when they released these proposed fines saying, you know, I'm all for law and order, but we need to take into consideration the fact that our policies are missing something. Hmm. You know, and he was he was getting to the notion of, you know, the FCC has been sued repeatedly in federal courts to make their media ownership policies more inclusive, to perpetuate or to promote diversity in access to an ownership of licenses to use the public airwaves, um, which is something that you've talked about repeatedly on this program. Um, but yeah, is it really going to uh, get at the issue of these stations existing? I guess we'll find out when the first sweeps are done, you know? Yeah, it's going to be curious to be what these sweeps are like, and and frankly, I mean, I start, I I wonder how this will look 
um, if, if that makes any sense. It, will the FCC be trying to to bring the to get the federal marshals, and then uh, does that mean that they're sweeping through with with you know armed federal marshals through neighborhoods like Flatbush, Brooklyn, or through Patterson, <laughs> New Jersey? And how will that be perceived by those communities? Yeah, well, you know, there's a historical analog to this, and I'm thinking back, you know, 20 to 25 years now when, uh, you know, white progressives were kind of the 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 backbone of what we used to call the micro radio movement uh, that that precipitated the FCC to even consider LPFM. And if you remember when that movement was kind of reaching its apex, uh, the FCC attempted to kind of do the law and order thing. They did a series of raids on pirates in Florida uh, over the course of a couple days that involved SWAT teams and federal marshals and breaking down doors and carting away equipment, things like that. And I think that, you know, now that they've passed this document, uh, the Congress has passed this document telling them to basically do that, they're going to have to do that in some way, shape or form. Yeah, but those were, I mean, those were still kind of sporadic, right? There was like maybe a couple in, in California. There was a few in Florida. I remember the party power pirate, uh, Doug Brewer. But I mean, these would principally be communities of color, right? Yeah, I mean, yep. it, and, it really starts and the context to, is the, the political context looks way different now. Um, and again, especially with us being in the Trump administration, uh, where we're kind of seeing, you know, ideas of law and order be totally, uh, just perverted. Um, it, it, it will look politically bad for those of us who care about those sorts of things. <laughs> but, uh, does that really matter in in modern America, in, in how law enforcement is conducted in modern America? It will really depend on how many other agencies want to play ball with the FCC. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, FCC, the FCC's enforcement agents technically are federal law enforcement officials, and they do go some, through some nominal law enforcement training, but they're not police. Um, and they need people with you know, armor and weapons <laughs> to come and backstop them when they do these sweeps. So it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, who plays ball. Will the NYPD get involved? Yeah, because there is a state law in New York that, right. that makes it a state uh, offense to, to broadcast unlicensed. And, and the NYPD has an incredibly checkered history of how they deal with people who are not white. <laughs> so, you know, uh, how is that going to play out? We we simply do not know. Can you, um, can you explain so, so what these interesting sweep? to see? Yeah, what do you think these sweeps are going to actually? Is it going to be people walking around with their devices, listening for stations? Is that what a sweep is? And and then knocking on doors. I think I think what it's going to be is you know like a, a targeted effort over the course of a limited time window, like a week, where you know these field agencies, uh, these field offices. Uh, for the Enforcement Bureau, um, are already keeping track of the complaints they receive regarding everything, including unlicensed broadcasting. And in many cases, especially where there are allegations of interference, they do go out and document that the station actually exists. They figure out where the location is approximately, and then they put it in a file. So I think like, you know, the FCC's Enforcement Bureau is going to coordinate with its 15 field offices around the country and say, you know, from June 15th to the 22nd this year, we want you to basically generate as many potential fines <laughs> against the stations you know about, and we'll just issue them all at once 
right? Um, and then the FCC can turn around and say, look, you know, we're cracking down using our effective tools. But then again, you know, where will America be in six months? <laughs> um, will it be somehow more politically acceptable to march down the street uh, with your, you know, drug war provisioned military surplus equipment with the local cops? I don't know. Um, it's a good question. Uh, and it remains to be seen because it's never been done really before like this. So we'll see. Yes, it is always kind of we will see. And it this is, you know, a battle that is as old as radio itself. You know, before there was an FCC, there were broadcasters. Before there was a Federal Radio Commission, there were broadcasters. Uh, the first broadcasters were unlicensed. And I think it's it's always been... Uh, this tale of of a little of cat and mouse and and the push and pull uh, because of the fact that owning a transmitter or making a transmitter uh, is something that ostensibly anyone can do, you know, in the same way that uh, kind of anyone can buy a car, but in many ways it's harder to buy a car without a license than it is to uh, to get a transmitter without a license in this day and age. Very true, and I mean, um, as part of research that I'm doing towards my next book project, I've actually started going back and looking at like, what have been the most draconian penalties ever put against uh, an unlicensed broadcaster? You know, have people actually gone to jail for this? Um, and the answer is yes, but not very many. I think over the course of, you know, a hundred plus years of radio regulation, uh, 16 people in the United States have been criminally you know, convicted of unlicensed broadcasting. And I think of those 16 people, like two or three of them have actually served time, you know, in some sort of corrections confinement process. Um, so, you know, like you're absolutely right. This has been uh, a struggle that's been going on. And it's also been, I think, kind of an unrecognized struggle of people from all walks of life. Um <laughs> Having some sort of issue with the way we consider, you know, regulation of access to what is supposed to be a public good. Sure. Um, and the fact that there has constantly been this this need for people to communicate in this particular way strikes at something larger about the importance of radio that enforcement itself doesn't really get us to. And again, that's just something that regulators these days are not really willing to even consider. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, we will, of course, be watching avidly to see what happens when we presume uh, President Trump signs the Pirate Act into law and the FCC starts its first basic six-month clock where until it has to begin doing these sweeps across uh, pirate hotspots like uh, Boston and South Florida and the New York metropolitan area. You know, I thought of uh, a cool way to jam it if I had like unlimited resources and a lot of activist power. It would be to create a bunch of, you know, short term unlicensed broadcast stations in places like Montana. So when the FCC compiles its data, suddenly they're like, Bozeman? Bozeman's <laughs> the number. There's been how many pirates? And we got to go to Bozeman? You know, 
to hopefully maybe try to protect the pirates in the more you know urban areas <laughs> mm. who are who are doing the good work. The know, uh, opinions expressed on, on Radio Survivor do not necessarily rep- represent time. those of this station or <laughs> RadioSurvivor.com. John Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on this edition. Thanks you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Thank you for spending another hour with us. Of course, we're at radiosurvivor.com. And we will talk to you next week. This is Matthew Lassar with Lassar's Letter on Radio. You're listening to a community radio station documenting police in Australia forcibly tearing down a squatter center in Sydney. This happened sometime in the mid-1990s. Um, bastards! What, mate? This is just for right, Get off look, the property! We're not your mate, sorry. Look, it's and we're glad of it, too. Oh, yeah. What if you're mate? Okay. What'd you do with his mouth? This guy's bleeding from his mouth. What did you do to him? What's his number? Get his We've number. got his number, the scum. Hey, if you keep that once more. Stupid man. Your sticks, eh? You your choice. Yeah, yeah, you we'll keep your mouth shut or you'll be in the back of the tra- truck charged with offensive behaviour. Okay? Yeah. Spread the mist for us. So it's alright for the police. The radio station was Skid Row Radio. It shared an occupied city building on Broadway with a community food center, a free legal advice co-op, and a bookstore. When the sheriff arrived to throw the squatters out, no surprise that the first thing he noticed was the radio equipment. Take that microphone and go away. Well, I mean, you can say that you're acting under your instructions, but we'd like to talk to somebody that we know can give the instructions. And that's got to be the town clerk or Vic Smith. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, that's just I mean, we've been through enough with this council to know where we stand, and we know that we can talk to these people, and they should well, come down here and talk to I, us. I then suggest that you go and talk to them at the we've, appropriate no, place. No, we've been talking to them enough, and they should come down here and talk to us. Well, I'm asking you to leave, failure to leave this time. I'm, I'll have the police officer to reject you forcibly. And if need be, uh, take people into custody and charge them. Well, that's not what we want, but we well, want to talk to people what you that want, are in charge. Like, this, is, this is what I want, and this is what I want done. And you're here illegally. You, all, you are aware of that, that you are now putting yeah, close. Yeah, and you know why we're here, and you know what we've been through yeah. and how we've been treated by the council. And, in, for, the, and for that reason, we would hey, like to speak to somebody that is going to come down here and speak to us and not just stab us in the back right. each time we Constable, go up here to speak to them. Ask them to leave. The takeaway from this forgotten trove of audio is that if you're going to do urban squatting, it's really useful to have a radio station around. The signal allows you to explain to the public what you are trying to accomplish. Sure, there's Facebook and Twitter, but when the authorities show up, there's nothing quite like being able to cover your negotiations with them live. Skid Row Radio is still around to this day, by the way, and so is squatting. With income inequality, housing prices and rent skyrocketing, I expect we'll see plenty more occupation of unused land. This is Lasar's letter on radio with some free advice to all occupiers. Grab yourself some airspace as well. So what happened? Oh, I was just trying to walk in the door and a cop punched me in the face. And I went to the ground and they dragged me out the back there and just threw me out against the wall and started going, telling me to f*** off. So they took you out the back window and could see you? Yeah. 
you think that's reasonable behaviour from uh, protectors of public law and order? No, not at all, but that's only to be expected from scum like that.